Welcome to the Yogi Therapist Podcast, where we talk all things mental health, personal growth, and spiritual development. I'm your host, Rachel, a psychotherapist and yoga teacher based in Sydney. This is your space to gain new insights and tools so that you can live a life that feels aligned and meaningful. Let's dive in. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Yogi Therapist Podcast. I am so excited today to be joined by a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker, the founder of Sage Shamanic Yoga Retreats and Training, Johnson Chung. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on your show. You know, when I first um, had the idea to do the podcast, I was speaking to Bevan about who I should have on. And one of the first people that he suggested was you. He was like, have you met Johnson? Do you know Johnson? Have you seen this TEDx talk? And I was like, no. And I had a look and I was like, oh, yep, that's it. We need him on. So I am so excited to really get into the mud today and talk about something that's really important, which is navigating our relationships with our family. Um, And before we get into it, I would love to just allow people to get a sense of who you are and where you've been and why this is something that you feel so passionate to talk about and to teach. That's a big question. Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I would just um, start (laughs) nice and slow, easy win. (laughs) Who am I? Any given day, it's always, I always find that such a strange question. Who am I? I am Johnson. I am, who am I? I actually... (laughs) I am, I guess, what you would call an energy medicine practitioner, meaning that um, while there's many modalities of how people work with energy and uh, being a Reiki trained person, being a shamanic energy medicine practitioner, uh, a lot of being a somatic um, practitioner and working with modalities like yoga and other movement modalities, my whole thing in life and where I am right now is energy and how energy takes up form and form meaning in 3D, how it expresses through gesture, how people take a step, how people choose their words. That's all materializing energy uh, into form. And so my job, I guess you can say, is looking at that and deciphering why, inquiring as to why energy has taken up in a particular form. And you can also say energy exists between relationships. And we have relationships sometimes just with one person that's very unique to us, that particular uh, resonance. And then you have sometimes entanglement of energy that, especially with families. So I have an older brother, a younger sister, I have a mother, I have a father, I have many cousins. And so then you have the many threads connecting and creating this, this kind of ball of yarn that's tied up. And, and this kind of, this kind of energetic entanglement is what causes us lots of grief in life. And that's really, that's really the nature of 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 why we were put here on this planet is to untangle this massive energetic ball of yarn. And so I would I would guess uh, or I would say that if if I were to describe what who I 
am. I guess I am in an interpreter of, of energy, and 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 I work with energy in 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 various um, ways, um, and and that's kind of the the broad way of looking at it. <laughs> Now I understand why Bev was like, you need to speak to Johnson because the question of who are you gets the most beautiful, eloquent <laughs> response. It's not like, oh, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> it's like, well, what is energy and who am I? And what does it mean to be a self? I love it. Um, yeah, amazing. I um I like I said before, the reason that I really wanted to have you on was because you have such a um not a unique story. I mean, I guess your story is unique to you, but a very common story about learning how to untangle those energetic bonds within the family. Um, so I would love to know a little bit about um, what it was like to be in your family, where your family came from and where this this sense of self started. Sure. Yeah. I was born in New York City, and my parents came from communist China. And they were in short, you know, because I, I kind of in my TEDx talk, I go through a little bit of my family history. So as a summary, I, I, I was a product of refugees who were victims of, of their government of their land of their of whatever was happening in China at the time. And because my father comes from the line that uh, a lot of it is, you know, goes down to the first, uh, the firstborn son. And so my father belonged to that line of landowners. And on both sides of my family, they, they come from judges and ministers. Um, and, and anyone who was educated or considered an aristocrat or was a landowner, even they were, um, deemed as enemies of the state. And so these people, um, had to flee the country, um, because otherwise they would be killed. And so my parents are products of, of war. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they, my mother tagged on to the, the back end of the, um, in 1980, Jimmy Carter, President, ex-president Jimmy Carter had the Refugee Act um, that enabled the Vietnamese boat people to enter the U.S. And so my mom filed for a refugee asylum. And that's kind of the long story short of how my parents ended up in America. And so my my upbringing was one where um, some people come to America because they want to be in America. Or they go to Canada or Australia or to the UK, places that are open to taking um, refugees in, um, or just uh, you know living the quote unquote American dream. Um, and then there are people who are there because if they were in their home country, they would be dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so my parents came in with a little bit of a uh, like we're kind of here because we need to be here to survive. And so I grew up with this sense of you are a Chinese person, you look Chinese, and you need to remember that and uh, and not forget it. And so uh, Chinese culture was very much ingrained into my upbringing, which was very challenging because um, growing up in, a, in, in America with very traditional values, uh, Chinese values is there's, there's, <laughs> there's there are issues um because culturally there's um uh, western culture very much prides itself on individuation and and 
cultivating your uniqueness when you're a parent, you're, you're trying to bring that out of your child. Whereas Eastern values in, in India, in China, in most of the East Asian countries is very much about the nuclear family and how you all stick together. Very much like Italians, you know, Chinese families kind of live all together. You're, you're almost expected to be with your parents until you kind of leave the nest and get married and have you, you know, and, and you, you're meant to take care of them. And so there is this very strong attachment bond, um, that's kind of infused into, into your psyche as to what's expected to you, especially as a, a male, like a Chinese male, you know, you're the, the pressures of, of upholding what that means. So, uh, passing on your family name is, is very, a pedigree, you know, th- this whole thing is, is very, very important. So the idea of not having children or breaking outside of the heteronormative family structure of, of me being a gay person, of course, not wanting children and also not planning to carry on the family name brought, um, a lot of, <laughs> it's just, it's a big no, no. It's like, why are you, why are you not just hurting, you know, me, you know, my mom and dad would go, you know, you're not just hurting me, but you're hurting all the ancestors who have come before you. You're dishonoring all of their names and all the people who have um, come before you, who have died, you know, you dishonor them. And so no pressure, it, Johnson. No pressure. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ancestral guilt that comes with, mm-hmm. with being um, a Chinese person. And I lived in Singapore for six years. So I, I saw... And I don't have any family relations in Singapore, but I, I happen to be there. And 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 because predominantly it is Chinese uh, Chinese culture there, um, you, you see you you see how deeply ingrained this is across. So mm. that's yeah, it, it's um such a common experience for people who come from immigrant backgrounds to feel like they kind of have one foot in two worlds, you know, but also. They're half, say, American or half Chinese, but they're they're not a whole in either half. You know, they they can't fully identify with the Chinese culture, but they also can't fully identify with the American culture. And, you know, it can be really disorientating not knowing where you are and and, um, in which culture you can soften into. But, you know, one thing that um, that really stood out for me in your TEDx talk is you talk about how you are born into a set of obligations and expectations that come um, from your family lineage, that before you were even born, there was already this expectation of you, what you would do for the family, for the culture, for this world, that you really were never going to get much of a say. It was handed to you and you were just to accept it and get on with it as everyone in, you know, all of your ancestors had done previously. Yeah. And I think that's spot on. And then you have to add on the the trauma of mm-hmm. political conflict and and then having my father witness his mother murdered, right? And um you and then them in the town telling him that it was actually a suicide when indeed it was you know, a murder. And so, and similar things happening all across both sides of my family. And my my parents almost being orphaned at at quite mm. a young as they were the younger ones out of their their siblings. So you have the imprint of that uh 
imprinted right into their psyche. And so it's it's almost as if they they began their parenting journey with this pressure and almost as if they were trying to make it up to their parents and to their ancestors for 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 guilt or um feeling like they that this is a, an act of retribution and so you know this is a very particular story to to my family uh, but still we all it doesn't matter what background you come from everyone has some sort of imprint some sort of expectation when they're about to have um their children all right um and it could be small or big but it's it's really this this imprint of expectation that creates karma and the cycle of karma and you know in the yogic buddhist world karma is is a loop and it is caused because there's there's a action and then there's a consequence and it keeps going and going and going and so when we're on this hamster wheel of karma um expectation is kind of feeds that it, it creates even more and then you could say then the human soul's journey is to begin the process of untangling that and uh being very conscious to go hey i'm i'm not going to play on this hamster wheel anymore i'm going to step off of it and and this is very much um this is what we're kind of talking about when we're talking about toxic family relationships part of the condition of of being a son or a daughter or you know anyone who is belonging to a family we all have even if you were adopted right there you still have certain conditioned expectations and so your job is to question or our jobs right is to question do i want that is that actually what's in alignment for me right now or is that a set of instructions given to me because oh my dad was a doctor and his dad was a doctor and and so now i have to be a doctor mm-hmm. and maybe indeed you do want to be a doctor but have you questioned it and this is where you know when people wake up all of a sudden when they're like 50 and they go oh my god i never wanted this all along and 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 when we talk about inquiry right the buddhist um uh, philosophy of inquiry self-inquiry inquiring the nature of suffering inquiring about why i'm doing what i'm doing inquiring about why i want what i want or not want and all of these these questions are are part of the spiritual journey and, and part of waking up out of the nightmare of oh yeah this is this this relationship actually is not worth uh you know worth it or it maybe it is worth it and you want to repair it and so it doesn't matter necessarily if someone is going to break up with their family because actually my TEDx talk was initially entitled how to break up with your toxic family uh, but then they they decided the organizers changed it to how to deal with toxic family relationships it was a little bit too like too much to like break up and you know we do this all the time with people that are not family we do it with ex-lovers ex-boyfriends ex-girlfriends and um also with friends sometimes we let friends follow our lives because there's a mismatch or we grow out of certain patterns and behaviors and so we do this with other relationships but for some reason it's a big taboo with with family and you know the statistics of a family estrangement in the US is is about almost 30% it's about 28 29% that adults will 
experience some level of family estrangement, be it from uh, a, a father or mother, or maybe even like a sibling or even like a another relative, like an aunt or an uncle. And in Australia, I think it's it's less. I think it's like one in 25 Australians. But that's, I'm not sure if the, the studies are um, as prevalent here as it is in the States. And of course, there's more people in the States. The UK is a very similar um, percentage as well. And so it, it is, um, if you think about it, it's almost like a quarter, a quarter of, you know, one in almost like one in four, right, are experiencing this. And, and it is something that is seen as um, unfavorable, you know, when, when, when someone goes, oh, I, I, I actually heard this quite a bit. Um, whenever I would speak to people of my parents' generation or they've seen my TEDx talk, they go, oh, you do know that your parents love you very much. And it's not that I don't know that my parents love me. You know, I, I know that. They just have their own way of expressing that yeah. based off of their conditioning, based off of their trauma, based off of all of that. And that can be true, right? And I can love my parents very much as well. However, there's still a mismatch in the way in how we communicate in what they want from me, what I need from them. And because that part does not work, we can't really have the kind of relationship that, uh, you know, we can't sit at the dinner table and, and you know, I, I cannot sit at the dinner table and have my father try to convert me from being a gay person into a straight person and then have him, yeah. <laughs> and you know, rant at me as to why I'm such a hypocrite for being a spiritual teacher and, and him kind of reinterpreting all the Buddhist principles to, to fit what he deems as, you know, what is right and what is uh, righteous i should say like what <laughs> yeah and 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 that doesn't work for me because that pulls me into that pulls me away from me yeah. right and so actually distance and separation between me and my father is is actually very healthy my mother is slowly coming around and so like we can kind of you know sometimes my mom like will have to like sneak away and have a chat with me on the phone and we'll have like small little chats but sometimes she slips up too and then she goes into her place of oh actually you know it, it, it would be really great if you could just you know pop out a, a grandchild <laughs> just to kind of um, <laughs> just to kind of calm his heart because then then maybe he won't have a heart attack and die and we won't blame you right oh, that's wow yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's that blame game right yeah. of uh, that thing that parents sometimes do mm. and uh it's we all have some version of that and and we have to decide is that healthy for us and you, i have to uh, part of it is also grieving the, the loss of the relationship part of it is also taking responsibility of well yeah it would have been nice to have parents who hugged me parents who were not physically um uh, demanding um in my upbringing that that would have been really nice right However, that was not the case. That was not what I had. And so it's almost like part of the, the healing journey is to learn how to be what you wanted in the past right now. You know, yeah. what I wanted was this, 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 but I did not get that. And so I am now going to take accountability for what I need as an adult and be that for myself now, instead of yearning for what could have been, because the reality is I, I will, I will never, I will never have 
that ideal parent because that's not what I was given. And then learning to appreciate that that was the gift that I was given in this life that enabled me to do what I'm doing now and travel and 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 have the the courage to be separate from them because we all of our pain stories, no matter how difficult they were, have given us a certain kind of permission to be where we are today, right? Whether you have family issues or or you don't, you have some other pain story that's given you the strength and the motivation to push you into where you are currently today. And so, you know, my whole thing with toxic family relationship is not just about family. It's, it's about all relationships. Is this, is the way in which I'm communicating with this person, how they're communicating with me, is that actually helpful for me? And then we all decide we're responsible. Well, I'm responsible for my experience. You're responsible for your own experience. You're responsible for staying in that, that relationship. That's on that's it's 50, 50. It goes both ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that you you mentioned is so important, which is speaking to this zeitgeist and this dialogue that we have around family, which is that um, family is the most important thing that you'll ever have. So you need to pour everything out to make sure that those relationships stay in your life at the cost of anything else. In, and it, it comes up, you know, even in small little comments of like, yeah, but that's your mom. You know, oh, but you know he didn't mean it. That's just who he is. You should go back and have a conversation with him. And we tend to put a lot of the onus of responsibility on the child to go and fix the relationship with the parent. You know, we always say, you know, they're not going to be around forever. You know, you they had this this background and that's why they are the way they are and you should go and, and mend it. And very um, rarely is the conversation directed towards the parent of, hey, you know, you don't necessarily have very long left. Do you want to have a relationship with your child? What might you need to do in order for that to happen? And I think the the difficulty is, is that it's not uncommon for kids to or, or children to become more emotionally mature than their parent. And they really are the only one who are who is able to come to this relationship dynamic with a fresh set of eyes. Um, and you know what you spoke to was this long cultural line, this lineage of um, generational trauma. You know that that gets passed down through culture, um, cultural expectations that gets. Um, unchallenged throughout generations. And then they finally landed on someone who, for whatever reason, they were challenged by you. And I'm not sure if it's because you you landed in America and perhaps you had a new, uh, a new framework that you could kind of um, compare it against, or maybe it was something within you. Maybe it was a karmic thing of it was always going to stop here. Um, but there was something in you that said, hey, actually, what do I want? You know, what do I then want to pass down through the world if, if it's not through children, but in the way that I interact with people, you know, in the beliefs that I embody and I share with people through my work or just with, you know, the transmission of, of my existence? Sure. Yeah. I think part of that is karmic and it is, 
I mean, if we're going to go and open up the Pandora's box of soul purpose, we all have created a particular mission and a particular purpose before we landed here in this physical incarnation. And we just simply forgot. And we can say, if we're going to define the human experience from a soul point of view, that we're all here to remember and to uh, to remember that purpose. And if, and purpose is oftentimes mistaken as a, a tangible goal, right? Oh, I need to get this job or, you know, be a good husband or wife or mother to my children or parent to my child, whatever it is, right? It, it is really just the frequency of love. It is, I'm here to be the most loving, joyful, open expression in whatever way and that manifests, be it I'm a sculptor or I'm the CEO or whatever it is, right? And that if we're all operating from that place, right, that's our shared human experience, then, you know, the world will be a different place. But oftentimes we confuse um, the, the sole mission as I need to have this salary by you know the end of this year and be working at this very specific job right and then we get we get confused and and um the same thing goes for our um uh our expectations that we have on other family members because i've seen it go both ways with um adult to child and child i'm sorry not adult parent to child and child to to parent um, it's about capacity because sometimes the child is more stubborn than the parent. The parent wants to make amends and there's a mistrust there, right? And sometimes it's the other way around. Um, in Japan, actually, it's it's interesting. The rate of uh, child to parent abuse, the other way around, through financial extortion, especially when the... Uh, the older parent or the aging parent has gone into an old person's home. And if there is money involved or inheritance or something like that, um, there is financial extortion and abuse. Um, and the statistics are higher with male children to their aging um, mothers mm. um, and extorting them for money. And that could be that the, the aging parent has not set enough boundaries and and has allowed their child to step all over them and say, oh, well, they're my son, so I have to help them. So I'm right. So it works both ways. It's not just always child to parent, but but I have seen cases where the the child is 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 unwavering in their position. So if if one party, it doesn't matter if they're the 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 parent or if they're the child, is unwilling to be open to see something and to suspend their disbelief right because you know yes you have a history and and but you do want to in, uh, give the other person the benefit of the doubt if you are going to make any sort of stride to uh amend or or to repair the relationship if that's what you want right there are certain cases where perhaps it doesn't make sense to right and that's like uh if there's been extreme abuse you know be it sexual abuse or or all of this but oftentimes most of the family estrangement cases are around neglect or a feeling of abandonment or um and you know we have this perception that something happened a certain way memory is a funny thing <laughs> we believed that they did not love us or they did not you know they did this purposefully to hurt us or whatever it was and you know if i really separate myself from the events that happened yes 
My mother was very physically, um, you know, she raised me with a, 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 a whip and a, and a broomstick and a belt and whatever she can get her hands on. She was a bit more physically demanding than my father was. My father was a bit more distant and removed. And then the roles kind of changed when, when he, he became, you know, when I came out and, and, and then it became like this whole other verbal, emotional abuse thing that came from my father. And then my mother had to play the mediator, right? So everything kind of flipped. And so I have a certain, you know, let's say in, in my late teens, I had a very specific view as to who my mother was because I was influenced by her behavior and how she disciplined me growing up and all the things that she would say uh, of, of, you know, that A minus is not good enough. And so I'd get beat until, you know, I, I, I'd study more and then get an A, right? It, it, was, a, it was a very harsh kind of uh, upbringing. And now my mind translated this whole physical experience with my mother as unloving, as cold, as cruel. However, until I remove myself enough from the actual situation, almost like I'm viewing what happened to me as, as like a movie that's a little bit separate from who I am, mm -hmm. until I can get to that state and see that actually that was her way of showing love because of who she was, because stepping into her shoes and and her upbringing and 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 really acknowledging that 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 was her expression of love, even though it's it, I don't agree with it, right? I, it doesn't mean I agree with it, but I have to acknowledge that that was her expression. And until I came to that, and I had that experience when I was in India, and I, I was given a very particular assignment by these mystics to do that involved a prayer in the water. And, and I, I understood it was in this moment when I was in the river doing the prayer and doing the assignment that was given that I actually understood, oh, I actually felt what it was like to be my mother, to feel the pain of being forced out of you know the country because it was a life or death situation, having seen all the horrific things that she saw while she was leaving, having to swim from China to to Hong Kong, you know, that's like you know, like all these because it, it, you know otherwise you get arrested as, as, as trying to sneak on a boat and you you would waste all this money paying for the boat and then get arrested and and they tried and they failed and then having seen and felt that in my body and understanding that that was the best that she could do. Yeah. That was all she could do. Yeah. And because, and because she didn't, she didn't go to therapy and she didn't do any of these things to kind of work through it because in, in, in Chinese culture, it's almost seen as, you know, a big taboo. Like what, what's she, she would always say, no, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I'm mentally sound. I would never go see a therapist. And so it's like the capacity level is not there, but then, so then you have to meet her where she's at and then empathize with that story and go, oh, yes, that's her love. Her love was a harsh love. And until I can really accept that, I can't actually move forward. Mm. You know? And um, th this is this is where everybody has to get to on their own accord mm. in, in some way or another. And sometimes we get there faster than, than others. And sometimes we spend a whole lifetime just dwelling on, on, well, I wish my mom could have been this way or my dad could have been this way. It's like, well, guess what? They weren't. So yeah. now, <laughs> you know, I remember seeing this episode. I don't know if you've ever watched the show. I think it's called like Ayana Fixed My Life. 
anyways, it's this, she's like a life coach in, in America. She used to be big, like around Tyra Banks time. And she was talking to this young girl who just had uh, quite an abusive mom. And, and she was, um, she was like, oh, you want a relationship with your mom. You want your mom to be the soft, warm, nurturing woman. And the girl's crying. And she's like, well, you'll never get it. And it's really abrupt. And hence why it turned into a meme, but it is, there is this point where you um, you do realize and and accept with you know radical acceptance that they do not have the capacity to be any other way. And I think what you speak so beautifully to is the idea of this duality of allowing multiple things to be true at once. Which was, you know, if we were to watch the movie of your mum's life, what you would feel is a deep sense of compassion and empathy and. Um, reverence for her story and her strength and an understanding of why she is the way she is given where she's been in this life. And, you know, it's interesting how you said that some people get like stuck in this place of, well, my mom's not who I wanted her to be. And I agree. Some people absolutely do get stuck there. Um, I've also seen people get stuck at that point of like, but she loves me and um, this was the best she knew how. And I think where it ease um, into into muddy territories when that understanding is used as a way to justify it or to stay in the relationship as it is without then amending. And I think, I mean, I would love to get your thoughts on this, but, you know, it's it's being able to say, you know, my parents are the way they are given what they've been through you know, and I can have compassion for that. They are doing the best with the the tools that they have with what they know. And at the same time, this is harmful to me and I am not able to be in a loving relationship with them if I allow myself to stay in this dynamic, that I will need to implement some kind of boundaries and address this relationship. Um, and I'm allowed to grieve that my mom or my father or whoever is not who I wanted them to be. You know, and it's how can all of these things be true at one time? And that's such a quantum science question that you ask. How can all these things be true at one time? And, you know, the Buddhist monks, when they talk about which is it, is it this or is it that? Is, is it is it that they love me or is it that they hate me? And it's not as black and white as we 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 like to think it is. It is actually all of those little truths, these relative truths can exist all at the same time. Can you feel excited and nervous at the same time? We can. We know that as human beings, we have the capacity to be in multiple states all at the same time, right? Feelings. We have feelings. Feelings are a compilation of many, many, many emotions, which is really just another way of saying it's it's an amalgam of many different energetic states within us, right? You think about just think about how nature works. You have radio signals and, and infrared radiation and ultraviolet light and all these waves that we cannot see hitting us, Bluetooth waves, cell phone waves, hitting us all at the same time, all the time. And so energy is constantly flowing and it is never stagnant. And so to, to think that we're, we're just this one state, it, it doesn't make any sense. I think that in order to fully navigate through the complexity of the many different emotional states that we might be feeling at any given time about our parents. So I'll, uh, we have to be very, very present to what is being asked of us in the in the very moment that it's happening. So for example, I'll, I'll use this example. I 
my mother, my mother is extremely moody, just like myself. And I, I get it from her probably. And, and she will, she will flip, you know, she will be extremely celebratory and very happy. And then, uh, and then the next moment she will get very critical and, and go in for the jugular. And, and, uh, when I released my, when I released my book, I went back to New York to do like a book reading and she said, and my, my book is about my family and it is about my spiritual journey and about me being a gay person, not being accepted by a traditional Chinese family and, and all these spiritual things along the way about acceptance and et cetera, et cetera. And my mom said to me, <laughs> um, she goes, I'm so glad that you're back. Right. Cause I, I go, I go back to the States every year and a half, every two years. I'm not there very frequently. And, and she, she said, if you just don't go to this book launch thing and write a totally different book, you know, cause she was kind of freaking out that I, I, I was putting this book out about the family. Right. And, and she said, you just write a different book about how you turn straight. That would sell a lot more copies. Right. <laughs> and so I just kind of stood there and I, 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 I stopped, I paused, I breathed and I received what she said. You know, and and I did not respond right away. So my ego would have been like, oh, my God, what a bigoted thing to say. How dare you ruin my, you know, this is my this is my moment. This is my event and da, 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 da. But I actually started laughing because I thought, actually, that would be very true. It would probably sell a lot more copies if this, you know, extremely gay person turn straight and like, you know, it would, you know, all the Bible thumpers, everybody, everybody would like buy that. Like they would be like, wow, look at this. The conversion therapy worked. Right. So on some level it was true. I was like, you're, you're right, mom. Actually that would be. And I responded in a way that was a bit, you know, very light and comical. I said, yes, you know, you're right. But actually thank you for that. Cause I recognized it was coming from her place of fear and anxiety and also no, she she didn't want um, you know, a lot of like her her stuff about my homosexuality is is also protective, protective of 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 what the world would see me as. You know, part part of it is also ancestral and like the obligations of what it means to be a Chinese male and to propagate the bloodline and all of that. But there there's another part that that's protective. So I I latched onto that part and I just said, you know what? It's fine. You know, I'm, I'm going to go do my thing and it's fine. And, uh, um, I'll see you later. Right. And, and that was it. I ended it and I left, I got on the train and, and I went to my thing. Um, you know, and so my mother can go through all of this. And so if she can go through all this, I can also ride that wave with her. It's like a tennis match. Like you cannot stay in the same spot on the court all the time. You kind of have to you have to be in the moment with with what's being said. My father, though, he's he's quite aggressive with, with his opinion. So, you know, he'll he'll go into his rant. And so with that, I have to I have to disengage. I, I can't I can't because it's going to turn into a fight and, and, and it's not it's just not going to happen. And so I have to go. All right. Well, uh, um, if there's not anything else that you need to say to me, I'm going to go you know, and, and just making, and, and these are little tools that you, you learn, um, even though it hurts, you know, every time he says something that that's really biting, it's, it's like, oh my God, I just want to like yell at him. Or I want to like, you know, get into a fist fight. And, and I have to remember, like, this is coming from a place of pain. Um, you know what he's saying and I have to go, it's not in his capacity to stop this because he doesn't have, have that it's up to me. Right. And, 
again, it can go either way. Sometimes it's the parent that does that. Sometimes it's the child that does that. It's whoever has the most capacity yeah. to, to be able to uh, see the other's point of view. They're always going to have to be the first person to disengage from a potential fight. And that's just how it is. It's going to be. Yeah. It's it's kind of like, you know, when you're in a like a martial arts dojo, you have the demo people that come up and they do the fight and they, they're showing all the other disciples who are learning how to like fight uh, with the mistakes. And, and so these two top students who are in the dojo, they're like the top fighters and you have like the Sifu and then you have like the Sifu's like lieutenant you know and and they go to town and they have their weapons and they're just like and all the students like oh my god wow that fight looked like it was super real um it looked like you know one of them were was going to kill the other that's like me and my father and i think all of us have the most perfect opponent that we've been assigned you know that sparring partner um Mm. and we're we're kind of meant to play that wow it's Kind of like a, it's like a play. It, it, it's like you were, we're actors on a stage. It's like Shakespeare said, you know, and as you like it, all, all the world's a stage and each man and woman are merely players. And so we're merely playing a particular part. And sometimes that part that we're playing is, you know, wow, we're going at each other's throats. However, we get to, we're also the author. We're not just the actor in the play. We're the author. We get to also go, actually, I'm going to write a transition out of this. <laughs> I don't need to be sparring in the dojo 24-7. I need a break, right? So we have to remember that. And I think the people who get stuck in the drama forget that they're also the author. They just think like, oh, well, I've been given my mom. I've been given my dad. So I have to play this telenovela of drama. I'm like, all right, that's a choice. You can do that. But I've written myself out of that. You know, I've been away from the States for 10 years and I've had to redefine my relationship with family, you know, and sometimes every now and again, I get this, this nagging voice that goes, oh, well, maybe I should, I should just have a child, you know, and, and to, to, to satiate my mom and my dad, like I'm almost 40. Like I, it's going to be a bit too late if I go any, any, any later than that. And, and then I sit down, I'm like, oh my God, where did that thought come from? You know, I'm like, that's not my thought. That's that, that's my parents um, speaking. Um, but there's always going to be a part of me that wants to satisfy mommy and daddy just to make them happy. And then I have to come back to like, actually, this is what I want. And I have to stay with it. And then I have to, you know, go, okay, my chosen family, my chosen family, my partner, my my friends, you know, the people that I've I've met abroad. And, and, and I think as queer people, we especially in the last 10 plus years or so with with queer culture becoming more in the forefront, that this idea of chosen family is a little bit more accepted in the queer community because unfortunately there is still a lot of um, this lack of acceptance from from sometimes uh, sexual orientation, right? Which really is just um, mismatch of, of, of belief systems and views, which is all that is. And most even if it's not around sexual orientation, the reason families are fighting is because there's a mismatch of views. Basically, I don't agree with how you're handling this situation. I'm So I'm going to come in and micromanage you, be mm. it parent or child. And that's all family squabbles are. It's it, most of them anyway, right? It's like, it's this disagreement of how things are handled. It's mm. like, no, 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 I, 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 I would do it this way. And then they get into a fight. 
Yeah. You know, I just had such a big aha moment as you spoke about the way that you fight with your dad um, and the way that you said it was, you know, everyone's been assigned their perfect sparring partner. And I think, yeah, I think about, um, you know, people that trigger me the most, people that I have, you know, a lot of difficult emotions around, you know, it's so easy to write them off as really annoying or you know, the total antithesis of who I want to be in life, but that reframe of they're actually your teacher. What are they showing you about yourself? It just immediately created so much space within myself to be able to step into a relationship with them just with a bit more softness about why am I here and what are my expectations? Are my expectations to change you, to get you to like me or to get you to agree with me? You know, I once heard that, and I love this, this idea that oftentimes um, our greatest frustration with people is that they're not enough like us. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) you don't do things the way I do. Um, And that's a personal failing of yours. Um, So yeah, I I just love that, that idea that they're here to teach us. And um, Oh, where was I going with that? It'll come back. But it, it just, it, it gives you so much permission to, to step in with them. And the other thing that I, I noticed, and I really want to dig into this with you, um, you know, when your mom said to you that, you know, despite the fact that you had written this book that was clearly authentic, it was an expression of yourself, it was something that I'm sure you were very proud of that you put out into the world, her only response was, yeah, but it could be different and you could, you know, it was, it was this rejection of it. You, Your automatic reaction was, okay, I can step into the ring with you, but I know how this goes. So instead I'm going to pause, I'm going to take a breath and I'm just going to kind of let it be, you know, water for ducks back and laugh. Um, and at the same time, you know, you notice that your dad's reaction could be really big and you have to disengage what is consistent in those two experiences is that you have a very strong sense of self because you so easily could have said, oh, yes, you're right. And, and, um, taken on what they said as, as your reality. So this is what I would love to know. Given that children have two fundamental needs, the first being attachment and the second being authenticity. Um, and we know that if a child's attachment is threatened, they will forego their authenticity to stay attached, right? If who I am fundamentally is going to make us disconnected, don't worry about who I am. I want to stay close to you. That's how children are initially. But as they get older, that authenticity can come through. What is it that made you realize that the authenticity was no longer able to be sacrificed? Hmm. I think acknowledging that I should go back and also add in that though I chose to respond differently, Mm. that there was still a part of me that felt like a hurt child. So I was on the train, thoughts of when I was on the train to, because it was a 30 minute ride from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you know, on the way to the book thing, there were thoughts of like, oh God, what am I doing? Everything's going to change once I get on this, you know, I was going to like a queer space and there was a panel and there was going to be a discussion. And now it's like my family stuff's out there <laughs> and it's like, everything's going to change. So there was a moment of, should I not actually do this? I could cancel this because of what my mother said, what my father said earlier that day before I, I, I went off to the event. So 
just because I chose to respond by I'm not getting in the ring with you doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a part of me that's still hurt by what they they said. So there that there's the adult part of me that that goes, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. This is what I'm choosing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the child part of me, like what you said, that that just wants mommy and daddy to to like what I'm doing. I drew this wonderful picture. I want you to like it. Please like it. I wrote this book. Please like it. And then it's like, nah, you should write a different book. <laughs> like that, that drawing's no good. <laughs> right. So, so of course, my child goes, oh no, 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 no. This is not good. So there is a little bit of a tussle inside. Um, and I think when we talk about the strength of choosing one way or the other, we have to acknowledge the voices within. Yes. I think that's where strength comes from. Cause I think sometimes people misinterpret strength for being like, Oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. But that's, that's actually just being stubborn and um, disconnected. disconnected and hardheaded. Yeah. But it, it's, I was a bit sad on the train. I had to go through a moment of grieving. You do it every time. There, there's always a grieving period. And it gets shorter and shorter each time. So there was probably, you know, tearing up. I'm trying to remember. I don't I don't remember exactly what happened in the train. But I, I was a slightly emotional on the train. Yeah. But then, so you feel it. You have to feel the sadness of your little child getting put down again by mommy and daddy, even though you're an adult. Um, and then you go, okay, now what? You know, that's a really great question to ask yourself all the time. All right, I feel sad. And again, they're demonstrating this behavior that highlights the fact that they're not the parents that I wanted them to be and they're not being supportive in this instance. All right, now what? Mm. Then make a choice. I go, do I quit? Do I leave this book thing? Do I, you know, or do I go, let me give myself the courage to to support myself. Mm. I will just support myself and I supporting myself is enough. I don't need all of their support. And I think that's where the strength comes from is asking the question of what do I need right now? I need support. Can I get support from my parents? Answer is no. All right. So then who can support myself? Well, I guess it's just me. And also, you know, my friends who are going to show up to the event and there's going to be other people and and the people who are on the panel. And so that's is that enough? So it, this is kind of like a conversation I'm having with myself on the train. Right. So is that enough? It's like, OK, yeah, that's enough for now. That for now, that's enough. Yeah. Right? What and- a beautifully nuanced answer, because I think people can probably could confuse strength for apathy that I I don't let it uh, register. I, it doesn't affect me. I, I keep moving forward. And yeah, that could just be like being really disconnected from yourself. And you're able to say like, I f- still feel disappointed. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that you will never stop wanting your parents' disapproval, no matter who they are, no matter what they do to you. It is in what wired within you to forever want to be in connection and to be approved of by your parents. And this ties back to what you were saying earlier about allowing for the complexity of multiple feelings about a cert- certain situation to exist at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this is an example of that, that I can be in the resolve of I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but also still feel hurt and disappointed all at the same time. And and it's about, it's not the don't pay them no mind, you know, and ignore them because we know that ignoring 
and ignorance, ignoring what we're truly feeling, is one of the first states of suffering in yoga, mm. philosophy, and in Buddhism. So it's not about ignoring and trying to squash and suppress what just happened. It's like, all right, I'm going to, you know, when my dad said to me um, some very hateful things earlier before my mom said her funny thing, um, and my dad stormed off, <laughs> you know, I, I we got into like a very... Uh, spiritual debate and he was talking about how me doing what I'm doing is basically being hypocritical because um I'm essentially you know because he associates homosexuality with perversion um and and he says that you being a a spiritual teacher quote unquote is is being very hypocritical and then he started telling me why and he talked about, you know, you take these groups to Bhutan and to Thailand and, and you take them to these very Buddhist places, but you're, you're not even, um, you're, you're, it's so anti-Buddhist. And, and so we got into this like discussion that turned into a heated debate as to what, uh, compassion was. I'm like, well, if you were, if you were actually Buddhist dad, you know, I got, I, I threw some stabbing words at him. If you were, if, if, you know, I got into the ring. I was like, all right, we're going to go there. Like, you want to talk about compassion. I mean, your ability to accept me is, is, is that a, uh, uh, is that a display of like what the Buddha meant about compassion, about, <laughs> about loving kindness. And then he went off into this, his, this whole thing about, well, you know, it's about disrespect at the end of the day. You're, you're my child. I brought you into this world. And then, so it went to this whole other place that was very not, you know, Buddhist at all. It, it went into his stuff. Yep. And, and, and so I was like, all right, well, this is getting absolutely nowhere. Um, but he, he turned really red. It looked like he was going to have a heart attack. And I just let all the hateful words that he said after I just sat there um, it is, this is a, like a, a practice that in Tibetan Buddhism, they call feeding the, the inner demon. And so it was almost like he was my inner demon in the living room personified. And he's just stabbing me with all these hateful things. And I just became this empty colander. And I just sat there. I let hateful word after hateful word hit my heart. And I sat there. I breathed deeply. I did not move. I let him hit me with the words, not physically hit me, but he, he just said the thing and I felt how hurtful it was. And I let it, I let the pain sink in. And I was like, wow, that really hurts. And I, I felt the texture of how it hit my heart. It was, it was sharp. Mm. I actually felt my physical heart, you know, it, there was this actual pain that was very tangible. Yeah. He said another thing. And I let it hit me again. My heart got heavy. My shoulders sunk in and I just let him keep going. And then after he was finished, I close my eyes. I inhale, exhale a few deep times. And then I go, all right, I'm going to hold this pain and, and make a different choice. And, and, and that's how, that's when I responded to him, like, all right, well, you know, well, thank you for that. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go to my event now, if there's nothing else for you to say, mm. that was how I diffused it by actually letting him use me as a punching bag because he needed to let out his whatever his steam and so I was like okay you want to use me as a punching bag I'm I'm going to let you do that because if I come back in it's going to turn into this heated thing and I'm not going to have enough energy for my event and all of this and so um I don't know where I'm going with this this recounting of that story but um it's uh yeah it, it's it's allowing ourselves to feel the intricacies of pain mm. 
And when you can feel the pain, it doesn't turn into suffering because suffering is a psychological thing. Suffering is us holding on to a story that's keeping the pain yeah. in, in an elongated state. Yeah. Right? It's like all the, the Eastern uh, teachers say, the, the, the masters say that su- uh, suffering is a psychological phenomena, whereas pain is a fleeting experience. So in the moment, yes, it hurts to get punched. But if I allow myself to, to feel the process of being punched, I will not hold on to it so much in the moments mm-hmm. after. Yeah. And this is where that's that's a little bit tricky to 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 learn um because oftentimes as soon as someone attacks us we go right back and we want to like hit hit them back but we know that in most martial arts that if you come back to someone with equal force you're you're creating a volcanic explosion it's not the most efficient way to use your energy in a, in a in a sparring match if someone throws a punch at you you want to receive the punch in such a way that you disperse that energy by becoming the counter to that. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to become, you become the puzzle piece. You become the yin to the yang, mm-hmm. right? Someone throws something hard. If you throw something hard back, that's it. It's world war three. But if you become the soft punching bag to let the punch land in a certain way, it changes the whole energy of it. And that's, that's something to to be practiced. Yeah. And there's a real emotional mastery in that because, you know, humans have a natural proclivity to move towards that which is pleasurable and to run from that which is painful. And to be able to stay with the discomfort has to be a disciplined choice. And I, um, the analogy I, I love giving to clients around feeling your emotions is like emotions are a physical sensation. Think about other physical sensations that happen in your body that want to move when you need to go to the bathroom, when you need to sneeze, when you need to vomit. Have you ever benefited from keeping that in? Like, have you ever tried to like hold a sneeze in and your whole body is like pulsating or like when you really need to vomit because something in your body is like, it's trying to remove it and how much better you feel when you're free of that. It's, it takes a certain amount of emotional mastery and it really is a practiced skill of being able to connect to the physical sensation you know as you were talking about like those like sharp like ah hits to your heart like I could feel almost like these shards of glass in my heart like I could physically feel it and being able to connect to that sensation and then asking like how would you like to move do you want me to breathe you out do you want me to just sit with you and hold you? Do you want me to shake you out? Do you want me to cry you out? But you are allowed to be here. You make sense. And I know that you want to move. So can I love you enough and honor your your truth enough to move? Um, but that's hard. It's hard because oftentimes we need a witness. And depending on what your yeah. energetic constitution is, I happen to be in my energetic constitution more apt to do it on my own, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I'm designed. You know, there's, there's, there's many different types of energetic types. And so that gives me a certain type of resilience that could also border on border on stubbornness. Mm-hmm. However, that, that is what gives me the resolve to be able to go, I can do this myself. Most people need someone else to go, to be there, to hold space for them, to, to process that, Right. And, and for some reason, I, I, I mean, there are times when I need someone to hold space for me as well, but most of the time I, I can go, um, 
on my own and 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 do that process. Um, but most humans are not. <laughs> I'm very strange. So most humans are not designed in that way. We kind of need someone, an outside energy to come in and go, hey, exactly like you just asked, what what does that feeling need? Does it need to be breathed out? Does it need to go up? Does it need to go down? Mm. And, and until we're asked that, um, it, it kind of gets stuck. Yeah. And, and we're, we're, you know, for the most part, you know, as human beings, we're meant to help each other out. And, and that's what therapists are for. That's what coaches are for. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. To hold space. Um, I would love to get into the, the idea of contracts. Um, your Ted talk speaks specifically about family relationships, um, as being quite similar to a legally binding contract. Um, and I know that you said that there's, well, you got a lawyer to say, cause you're like, I'm not a lawyer. So you got a lawyer to come in and very officially describe the five requirements of a contract, which is that there needs to be an offer to do or to not do. There needs to be an acceptance of terms and conditions. There needs to be a consideration or reciprocal value. There needs to be mutu- mutuality where all parties will, they agree to perform the duties. And the last one is the one that you've said a lot I love uh, this one. Capacity. They have to have the capacity. They have to be of legal age and of sound mind. You feel you look like you have something bursting out of your lips. Capacity is one of the most, you know, I keep saying capacity because when we talk about capacity from a legal contract, let's say tenants always come to mind with rental agreements. If someone, my my partner recently had to deal with some very um, uncapable tenants who were constantly behind on rent, right? And of course, you, you don't want to kick people out. You don't want to be that person, right? However, if someone cannot pay their rent month after month and they're taking advantage of you, there are certain uh, clauses within the contract that supports you as a land, uh, 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 a landowner, not a landowner. What's the word? Landlord. A landlord, a landowner, <laughs> a landlord to um, to protect your rights because you know you have a mortgage to pay and all these things, and so you you can either break the contract, you can get them into court and evict them, and right. So there are clauses, and so that exists. Right, you have to, we have to remember that energy is energy, and so that exists in all of our. Um, th- this kind of structure exists spoken and unspoken. It's very clear when we're in a rental agreement, of course. Uh, it's it's clear when we purchase, let's say, uh, like let's say a trip. Let's say you 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 purchase a ten thousand dollar cruise to the Antarctic, right? You have rules and and terms of like what happens if you cancel the trip. Or what happens if for some reason there's like a malfunction with the cruise ship? What happens to the money that you've paid and the deposit? They're very clear terms in terms of capacity. Do you have the capacity to take me to Antarctica or not? Or do I have the capacity to take myself there? You know, what are the rights that are are allotted to me if I miss this trip because of a medical something? Do I have some sort of, um, is there some grace? You know, do I get part of my deposit back, right? So we, we do this in all parts of life. Because it's a mirror of the energetics of how relationships work, Mm -hmm. right? All relationships. We do this, but for some reason, we don't have this with friends or with family. We don't, when we talk about boundaries, what we're really saying is, I want to create a contract between you and me Mm -hmm. 
that's super clear. You know, some people are like, oh, prenups, you know, I'm like, I think prenups are, you know, of course there are prenups that are crazy. And then there are prenups that are uh, mutually agreed upon. Prenups are, are, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's an expression of your boundaries of Mm -hmm. what, so, so this is, this is, um, what is allowed and this is what's not allowed. And this is how much you, you will get, um, or not get because really our relationship is one of love and it's not tied to this monetary thing. Right. So I don't see anything wrong with that. I think the more clear we can get on setting these types of boundaries slash contracts, uh, the better off our relationships will be. I had people do this with their kids as an exercise to actually write out, you know, what they want from the other. And then they would come back together and pair notes. And then they created this, you know, and it became a fun project because now you've empowered the child. You know, I've, I've had parents do this with eight and nine-year-olds, right? Wow. And then they empower the child to go, oh, actually, mommy, this is what I would, you know, on Fridays, actually, instead of going to um, that, you know, to the knitting club or I don't know, whatever, like, <laughs> I wish we could go to the movies. And then you have to negotiate it. And then you get to teach yeah. your child the art of negotiation about setting boundaries. And then maybe your, you know, the parent goes, actually, no, we can't go to the movies every Friday. What if we go to the movies every other Friday? Yeah. And then so you learn to have a dialogue about what is allowed and what is not allowed. And 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 this is what the capacity is, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, and, and when we're talking about capacity in the emotional uh, way, you know, my parents don't necessarily have the emotional capacity to, uh, have certain conversations about yeah. my sexual orientation. So then if that's the case, I can't engage with them in this very particular contract. If any parts of the contract, you know, with the offer, the acceptance, um, mutuality is a big one. You know, if there's no mutual agreement, like there's no mutual agreement for my parents, they don't consider, you know, what it is that I'm putting on the table. You know, a lot of my arguments about why, you know, I, I call them arguments, but they're not really arguments. They're just statements as to why I am the way that I am. But it, it's almost becomes like I'm in court fighting for who I am. Yeah. There's no consideration. There's no mutuality, no capacity on their part. Um, and there's no acceptance on on my terms and conditions. There's only uh, acceptance on their terms and conditions. So if none of these parts of the contract ex- um, are, are working and agreed upon, there is no contract. If there's no contract, there can be no relationship. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And if you decide to get into a relationship where, where any of these parts are breached, you're basically, the analogy would be you're a landlord and you have a tenant who's squatting in your apartment who doesn't pay rent. Mm. And, and you're going, every relationship in your life will have some sort of energetic leak. I call this leaking. You're going to have a leak you know, breach, 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 you know, someone's come in and squatting in your apartment. And I don't care if that's, you know, your closest relative and and you're like, oh, for fear of wanting to hurt them, it's a breach. It's an energetic breach. And until we have the courage to step up and go, hey, I know your family, but you're in breach of two, three, four, five, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, I, I really want to keep this relationship. And we kind of, can we, is it possible for us to sit and talk some things out? You know, there's certain things that you say and do that kind of make me feel a certain way. And I'm not saying that I'm not sure what your intention is. Right. Um, But I I actually just wanted to talk about it. Right. Until you kind of have an open conversation and reestablish, because maybe they didn't know, 
you know, and then you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then the contract gets renegotiated and boom, you have a repaired relationship or a relationship that's working on being improved. But sometimes it just doesn't work. So then you go, actually, we need we need time out. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to move out of the apartment, no more squatting. And let's just give ourselves six months and then let's yeah. come back and see what happens. And I think if we adopt this way of looking at our relationships, um, it will just make things cleaner. You know, you can't get mad at your landlord for, you know, keeping your security deposit when you break the lease. Like you signed a lease for 12 months and you left at, you know, month nine. Like it's very clear in your contract. And if you throw a temper tantrum, that's on you, right? It's about your responsibility. And I think because we don't do this enough in our personal relationships, you know, sometimes we let friends just you know, say that thing that drives us nuts, but it's, oh, it's our best friend from kindergarten. So I'm not going to say anything, you know, and you just let them step all over you and hurt your feelings. And then you hold it in. That's, that's us with the leaky bucket. Mm. (laughs) I love that reframe of boundaries because I think boundaries, when I ever, whenever I introduce it to a client, they think that boundaries are like this power play of like, if you want to be in my life, here are the five things that you need to do. And I'm like, I am now in control. And I, I just think when we look at boundaries like that, yeah, we probably should have an aversion to it, but what boundaries actually are, uh, I, I value this relationship. I want you in my life, but there are things that you do that make it difficult for that to be true. If every time you call me, you're bitching about my dad for 40 minutes, I'm going to start to feel bored and angry. And it's really hard for me to want you in my life when I'm constantly bored and angry. So rather than asking you to stop doing that, I'm just not going to allow you to bore me or to make me angry, which might be, hey, mom, um, thanks for call you know, we're, we're five minutes in. I know where this is going. Hey mom, it's been so lovely to hear from you. I actually have to go and I don't know, pick up my, my shopping from Woolies, whatever. Like just, I'm going to set the boundary because I want you in my life and this needs to be there in order for us to continue that. You know, it's, it's actually such a loving act. I'm not going to allow you to do something that is going to drive a wedge with us to the point where I can't have you here at all. Yeah. It's so loving. I yeah. um I was laughing when you said that you had um you were helping kids to find the dialogue and the language around contracts. I think that is so beautiful and so powerful. And those are gonna be some really impressive kids one day. I was just like mindful. I was like, if I was ever given that opportunity, I would have come to my mom ruthless. I'll be like, listen here, Julia, chocolate milk for breakfast, Monday to Friday, or you're hearing from my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> but then at the same time, it goes, it's a negotiation. Maybe that's not the healthiest thing to do. Chocolate yeah. milk, ice cream every day at 2 p.m. And so then, you know, it, it works both both ways. The parent has to go, hey, actually, mm-hmm. what if, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's always the what if. What if we agree on this? Like, yes. how does that sound? Or it's for special occasions. And then you have to explain it. And I think that's where, um, you know, without the open dialogue, you, you don't, you, you, when, when a parent comes in and goes, these are the rules, there's no, you know, there, there, you know, for us growing up, there was no TV until all your homework's done. The TV was locked in the living room. You know, they, it, it, it was, it was a dictatorship. And so, whereas if you explain to the child, right, I have a, a functional medicine nutritionist friend who's who's very, very good at explaining things. And her kids, 12 and 14 now, I've known them since they were like very, very young. And they just know everything about why sugars are 
you know, what they do to, to, to the immune system. Like they know more about me about what sugar does to the nervous system and to your hormones um, because their mother explains it to them in such a way that not to dumb it down and not to say, it's bad for you. It's just, just, you're not getting it, you know? And I think that's oftentimes what happens is, is that people shut other people down and say, follow my rules. That's it. End of story. No sugar. Right. Whereas when you're having an open dialogue, they now understand, right? Cause they're not stupid. They have brains, right? So speak to them like adults. Now the kids know. And so, but there is, there's leeway because sometimes they do get that, you know, sugar rush, but they get, they, I watch them negotiate and it's very, very cool because, um, you know, the mother goes, um, okay, I know you really want that ice cream right now, but remember you're going to get a sugar spike, right? If you have this right now. And what do we know about the, da, da, da? and so th- there's this, the intellect is being honored as well. And I think that, um, part of negotiating with children requires, um, just the willingness to explain and to to um, to explain your point of view, right? And it's a little bit easier when you're talking about something that's a bit more objective, like sugar levels, and then understanding the science of it. But it goes the same for your your emotions as to well, you know, when you I know you didn't mean it that way when you said that, but it it made me feel this way. Um, or you know, when you complain about my dad for forty minutes, you know, I get that you have to vent. I totally get it. Would it be possible for you to ask me once in a while, <laughs> you know, um, how I'm doing first? Yeah. You know, you know, we all have those friends that um, and I'm guilty of it, too. You know, as soon as you get on the phone with someone, you just go off. Right. And then they're they're the person that's left listening to you. Yeah. As we don't mean to do that, but we kind of have to vet. And so. You know, to set the the boundary of like, what kind of call is this? That's a boundary. It's a question. Yeah. Boundaries are just questions. What kind of call is this? Um, oh yeah, I, it, this is a vet thing. And then you have to decide. Um, I have a thing in ten minutes. I can't do the full thing. I'll give you two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. Or um, actually, I really can't do this right now. But it doesn't mean I don't care. But I really, I, I will call you back in six hours. Or these are boundaries, yeah. right? All of these and it, a boundary is simply a question. What, what is, what, what, what is it that I can do right now? This is what I can do right now. How is this going to work for both of us? Yeah. My siblings and I, we always, you know, we're all best friends. And um, if we need to talk, the conversation always starts with, Hey, I need to vent. Do you have space right now? And it's a, no, I'm at work or yeah, yeah. What's up. And it just, yeah, it sets the tone and the expectation. And then also I'm not disappointed when I start telling my brother all this stuff and he's super distracted because actually at work and then, you know, it starts to spiral. But, um, you know, I, I, what I love so much about, you know, your friend who was having these conversations with her children is it's really starting to foster this engagement in the, into the process and, and having the conversation, being able to come to the table and say, let's talk. Um, I remember when Bev and I got engaged, he brought up the discussion about prenups and my initial reaction, I had that big egoic reaction and I, you know, I went there, I was like, he doesn't think this is going to last. His family don't trust me. Like whatever you can, you know, if, if we have a prenup, you're planning for the downfall of our relationship, right? The typical things that we, we go to. And I had to stop. And I actually was listening to this interview with a divorce lawyer and he talks a lot about prenups. And he said what he noticed was that the couples that do a prenup before their wedding 
are less likely to use it. But the couples that refuse to even talk about it are the ones that need it at the most. Because if you are not able to have hard discussions, you should mm-hmm. not be getting married. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, like let me, like you did with your dad, let me step out of this story for a second. You know, both of our parents own property. Let's just be realistic, but let's have the discussion. And, it, you know, what I think will be most important is not necessarily the prenup, but the fact that we went into this legally binding contract, mind you, eyes wide open, everything on the table, really intentional about what we're doing. I think that's the important thing. And since we're talking about prenups, prenups is a root chakra issue. It's about having. It's about finances and money, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about belonging at the core of it. You know, do I belong to this family or not? Because th- this is all root chakra stuff. And so when you don't talk about uh, the having, uh, will I have enough? You know, and, th- and then you enter a relationship or marriage uh, fearing that if I lose everything or if this relationship should end, then I will not have enough to provide for myself. And so then you bring that vibration into the relationship. Whereas if it's talked about, like, actually, this is what will happen if uh, something were to end uh, amicably or whatever, in whatever way, hopefully, if it, if things were to end, it's going to end amicably because you've set the boundary of what yeah. to expect. Whereas if you completely avoid the topic altogether, it's, it's again, it's avoidance, it's ignorance, it's, yeah. it's, it's a whole thing. You know, we we have to be able to talk about um, uh, all all of it, you know, like recently my relationship with my partner has kind of evolved to, you know, I I probably shouldn't talk so much about our personal things because that would be stepping on his boundaries. But but like it's it's evolved in such a way that we had to talk about how we're going to spend time with each other. Right. So so you and that has changed over the last 10 years. And so you have the conversation again and things are constantly evolving and you have to just lean in. And it's hard because then I go, oh, no, I'm going to bring this thing up and and I don't know how to bring it up. And he's probably going to think I don't love him. And But it's like, no, 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 I kind of have to bring it up because it's actually what's true for me. And then, of course, when you have the conversation, it becomes so much. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, it's free. I remember with the discussion again, initially, my like visceral reaction was that whole story. You don't love me. blah, blah, blah. But then I had to sit down and and think about it. And the thing about housing was really big for me. And I said to him, okay, his parents own property. Um, You know, that's obviously understandably something that they would want to protect. You know, if we got married for six months, you know, it wouldn't make sense for me to be able to then have half of their property. But but legally, I would probably be entitled to it. And I I felt this discomfort because when my parents split – one got the house and and the other had to go and move to another house. And there was a lot of housing insecurity. And Mm -hmm. so I said to him, we need to sit down because things need to change. If we have kids and we do split, I need some kind of housing security because there is this, Mm -hmm. like, there is this fear that's been passed on to me around this. And it was just so interesting that this conversation around boundaries and contracts actually helped to illuminate this thing that I actually really didn't even know was there. You know, mm-hmm. until I had the theoretical threat of losing a house for my children, which doesn't make sense right now because I don't have any children. But I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know that this was in me. I'm glad that we had this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so you said that there are five things that you need to do in order for you to renegotiate the contract with your parents. Do you want to run through it? Do you want me to run through it and you can elaborate? Uh, sure. Yeah. So the first thing is to really acknowledge what the other person is saying, right? And this, again, to reemphasize from before, you don't have to agree with what the other person is um, saying. So going back to the example with my father, you know, him saying, oh, okay, so dad, you think I'm a hypocrite for doing what I'm doing, saying what I'm saying, traveling around the world, running retreats and being a, you know, he's like, you're a spiritual teacher. So I just repeat, part of acknowledging is mirroring back to what people say. And so we, sometimes we go straight into reaction. Whereas if someone says something to you, like, you know, you're a hypocrite for being a spiritual teacher and for da, 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 whatever it is that they say. And I don't necessarily agree with that. All I have to do is sit there and repeat back to what, you know, what my father had said exactly as he said it, question mark. It gives me space and time to process what he's just said and also get, gives him the opportunity to kind of hear back what he's just said to me. And then, it, and, and it's really fascinating because I can see him almost like short circuit when I'm repeating it back. Cause he's like, Oh, cause these are his words. So I'm, I'm just throwing it back. Um, and you know, naming the emotional state would be the second step. You know, that's a little bit tricky because oftentimes we name emotional states and we, and, and we blame people like you always, whenever you do that, you always cause me to feel, um, or you make me feel, we, we say this a lot. You make me feel like I'm an idiot or you make me, you make me whatever you make me crazy. Right. Um, we, we say that you make me, um, we are responsible for our emotions, right? Mm -hmm. So when we go into the, you make me this way, um, it's, it, it creates a defense, uh, mechanism in the other person. And so when we name our emotional states, you know, we have to be very skilled about how we use our language. So it's, it's the, instead of like, oh, you know, every time you do that hair flick, <laughs> I don't know, you know, how, yeah, you just, you just, so, oh, you're so crazy. Like you just make me like, I, I go crazy or, or um, I've done this to my father. Like he chews very loudly. I'm like, oh my God, you, you just, you drive me crazy every time you like, I'm like, can't you just close your mouth? Like, just why do you have to chew so hard? I mean, he has teeth issues, right? Of course. Like what, what, that's me. That's my mm -hmm. issue. Like, mm -hmm. right. So I have to find a different way of talking about my, my emotional state that allows me to own my emotional state without blaming the other person. Mm -hmm. um, and so an example of that would be with in this case with my father it was very difficult but um in an ideal world what could have happened was um every time you um um you know when or or when you say that I'm a hypocrite for doing what I what I'm doing it makes me feel sad you know there's no there's no uh I'm not attacking him back with my emotional state like oh you're always um, you're, you're so contrary to you. You just don't believe in me. And you, you know, I feel so unsupported, you know, I do feel unsupported, but like, I don't feel supported, um, because you're such a bigot or my, whatever. Right. So it, we, that takes a bit of practicing. And I think journaling is a very helpful way to, to go into naming the emotional state. I always encourage people to first, uh, go full, crazy with writing out exactly how they, they can rage in their journal and, and go like, oh, I feel unsupported. Oh, um, 
I feel a lot of hate. I just want to strangle you or like whatever it is that they want to write out and go, oh, wow. Okay. That's actually all of what I'm feeling. And then you have to kind of repackage um, the core of what you're feeling without, you know, jabbing the knife in the other person. Um, And then you can kind of run through it with other people, like with close friends or something and say, hey, just listen to this. I'm going to say it to you. Do you feel like I'm attacking you with what I'm saying with the emotion? Right. So this is the second step. The third step is to um, to share your point of view um, where uh, where you're coming from, because you kind of have to explain why you're feeling, you know, uh, to give context, essentially, as to why you're feeling your emotional state. You know, like what, like, for example, you were talking about uh, this this insecurity around the home if you were to have children. And so then you giving the backstory of like, you know, when I was a kid and my parents split up, one of my parents had to go off and they were left without a home. And so that brings this up for me. That's why I feel a little bit, you know, in this way. So now you've given me context, right? That's the third step. And then the fourth step is to make a request. It's like, that's where the negotiation comes, you know, using this housing example you were talking about with, with Bevan, you make a request. I don't know what your request was that you made. And then he makes a request. And then now you have this dialogue of like, well, what if we did it this way? Well, Mm -hmm. what if we had it so that the prenup is for six months or one year, or uh, it kind of terminates. And then we, or maybe there's a renegotiation period two years in, right? So, So then there's all these different um, creative ways to, to to make requests that satisfy both, right? Which you can't kind of get to unless you have the first the first three steps, and then the the last step, the the five the five the fifth is uh you know what do you think about that? How do you feel? And then the steps four and five can kind of repeat each, re- repeat itself until some sort of mutual um, agreement is made. And so it, it, it it's um I don't know how mediation people do it um or but but this is this is something that I I find works. Um, you know, I've tried it myself with mm-hmm. small things. Um, larger things, of course, is very difficult when you're we're talking about like you know fundamental belief systems <laughs> around sexual orientation, right? The, and and of course, if if one of the parties in the discussion is not willing to accept any parts of you know, they just kind of like go, Ugh, I'm not having this conversation. You can't do it. You cannot do the renegotiation of the contract. Sometimes people just go hard no. And then that's when you have to decide, well, what am I going to do? And oftentimes it's, uh, I need space and time. I'm going to separate or I'm I'm not going to engage. And, or this is where the breakup happens. Yeah. Yeah. This is the breakup with my father. Breaking up with my father doesn't mean I'm never, ever going to talk to him again. It just means that right now we cannot have a civilized conversation. So it's best that we don't. Because we've tried to, but, you know, there's no negotiating with someone who doesn't want to be negotiated with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That often say to people, you know, you can't communicate with someone who's um, intent on misunderstanding you. You know, there's no leeway. There's no point, you know, getting into the ring is only going to exhaust you and you're going to lose. Um, If there was someone listening to this podcast right now who was having a difficult relationship with their parents and they have tried and they have, you know, really um, done everything that they could to to make it work, but it really is coming at the expense of their their happiness, their, their sense of peace. As someone who has, you know, 
I don't want to say got to the other side of this because I think your relationship with your parents is, is a forever evolving entity, but what would you have to say to that person who feels as though something needs to shift but is perhaps scared or um, hesitant? I would say, of course, each situation is very particular to each person. However, the one common thing that I would probably tell most people is trust that space and distance and time, if you give yourself the time, it's not really about the the, the giving them time to turn. It, it, oftentimes people think, oh, if we give them time, maybe they'll turn around. It's like, no, 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 that's their responsibility. Give yourself time to accept, right? You give yourself, this is the only thing you can really do. You give your time to, to you give yourself the time to shift and to grow and to evolve um, and to, to feel what it's like to not have that particular relationship. I think the greatest um, thing that someone can do is to, to physically distance wise, not be in, for me being in New York city, you know, for a very long time was, was a big trigger because my, my whole family's there. My, my parents are there. <laughs> I grew up there. The, my patterns are there and to not be there to be reminded of certain behaviors and modes of behaving uh, because we, we, we kind of like, de- you know, when you go back to your, your high school or whatever, or you go see like really old friends, you kind of like default to certain kinds yes. of, right? it's like that. And and I think one of the, the easiest things to do, if it's possible is to remove your, even if you can't get out of the same city or the same country as your, your parents are, move neighborhoods you like like try it out the when you create physical distance you're less corded to um certain patterns and then and then go go into renegotiation if you can't do the renegotiation of the contract then a lot of the work then is in you learning to accept that that's just what it is yeah or right now right remembering that that's what it is right now and th- there's really no easy way around it. <laughs> you grieve. <laughs> you grieve, think- right? And you go, this is it right now. It's difficult. And then you surround yourself with chosen family, with, mm-hmm. with support. You create the support that you need, uh, what, be that with friends or, you know, in a women's circle or a men's circle or whatever it is, uh, a people circle. You, you do stuff to make yourself feel supported. Mm. You know, I love what you said at the beginning um, of our conversation around, um, you know, you take responsibility for the fact that you continue to go back to this relationship. I think one analogy I often use is, you know, say you've worked hard, you've got a big pot of money and um, you decide to go down um, to the race course and you decide to bet on a dog with three legs. You put all your money on this dog with three legs. It doesn't have the capacity to run as fast as a dog with four legs. It runs, it comes last, you're heartbroken, you've lost your money, upsetting. Then the next week you go back and you do it. And then the next week you go back and you do it. Now we can sit here and we can lament this dog for only having three legs. You know, it wasn't this dog's fault that it only has three legs. Maybe it was born that way. Maybe we don't know where it's been in this lifetime that it's caused it to lose a leg. But what you can do is stop putting all of your money on this thing that you know is going to leave you poor and empty, you know, and the 
only thing that we can do, given that our parents are on their own journey, um, is reassess how we show up to the relationship. And like you said, that might be distance, that might be uh, physical boundaries, that might be um, finding your chosen family. And one thing that I loved in your TED talk was um, when Vicky, who is a transgender woman, was sharing how her family didn't sh- didn't um, accept her, accept her transition and who she was. You know, she said, you know, I wanted my parents so badly to choose me, but they didn't. So I chose myself. I think that's that's got to be the journey of I'm on my own team, even if no one else will be. You know, I am. Um, and that was a summary of her experience. And I think because, of course, TEDx talks have to be a certain length. And so, you know, in our conversation, the many conversations that we have had, and I, I know Vicky in different capacities and that conclusion of choosing one's own self is is i mean that could be years for someone it could be you know a month right so mm-hmm. i would say that i would love if people could shorten that time so they're not dwelling for you know long long periods of 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 having to spend an entire lifetime just to wait to choose you know your own self and i think that's that's really the the empowerment journey the spiritual journey is is how can we learn to choose ourselves sooner so that we're not dealing with our you know mommy and daddy issues or whatever you know all this stuff forever and ever and then not get to the juicy stuff which is life you know, yeah. there's other things to 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 be doing and spending our time and and projects and and to, to be creating and life to be living. You know, yeah. yeah, other parts of of ourselves to be inquiring about. Um, you know, Carl Jung, who's a psychoanalyst, says that you know the greatest burden that a child will bear is the unlived life of their parents. And when we can acknowledge that that's what it is and allow that to be theirs and hand it back to them and say, well, what do I want? You know, there's so much freedom and so much space, like you said, to get to the juicy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He also says, you know, that the first part of our lives is meant to be forming a very healthy ego. And part of forming the healthy ego is you know, our ego is very much influenced by our parents mm-hmm. and what they want, you know, oh, mommy likes that. So I like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then he says the second half of your life is about letting it go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love him. He's got some bangers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks mom and dad for all those conditions. And now I'm going to decide for myself what actually serves me. Mm-hmm. And what if we all did that a bit sooner? I know. I know. Get yourself Maybe into therapy. Be life crisis. <laughs> Do therapy for six months, go and do an ayahuasca trip, get through it. Let's get to the good stuff. Um, the final question that I want to wrap up with, and this is a question that I love asking all of my guests, and it's, you know, I am of the belief that life happens um, for us and not to us and that everything is here for our, um, you know, to build our awareness. Like you said, our most difficult relationships are our greatest teachers. So I would love to know what is one thing that life has shown you about yourself lately? Hmm. What has what has life shown me recently? Tell me tell me the question one more time. What is one thing that life has shown you about yourself recently? What has life shown me recently? One thing about myself. I 
I just came back from the high mountains in Peru and I was spending time with a shamanic family, a shaman family. Um, and what was interesting in that time there was that though their their surroundings are very humble and and they don't have a lot in in the way of material means, they always feel that they're supported. And it reminded me of 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 support. It's going back to this this theme of support that, you know, I may not have uh, a mom and dad the way that other people have mom and dads who are very involved in their lives. You know, my mom and dad are quite distant from my life that I'm always supported by the universe. Right. And I think being in very humble um, uh, surroundings and seeing how they interact with the land and how they're always in constant prayer and also being in a, in a culture where family is like the backbone of, of farm life of, if you don't have a big family, it's hard to harvest the potatoes and even to plant potatoes and you can't eat. Right. And so the, the way in which they, they, they took care of each other and, and it was, it was like, Oh wow, how beautiful, like their, their, their families are, you know, unfortunately my family is not like that. Right. And so, and just being embraced by them reminded me of like, we get to choose we get to choose the kinds of experiences that we um want and and i don't i don't need to have an exact replica of of their version of family i can create that for myself and and i think when we can feel supported and remind ourselves that we are supported in everything that we choose to do it will happen um and yeah and i think that's where I think that's where most people uh, are afraid um, to make certain changes because they feel like, oh, if I make this step or if I confess this or if I profess this, I will not have the support to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm here to say, mm-hmm. and also I was recently reminded, like, no, we're always supported. Just commit to the choice and and that's it. Um, I know it sounds simpler than than. Um, uh, you know, going through it, but that's, that's our, our, that's our stuff. That's our emotional stuff that keeps us in the way, but it's actually, it's really that simple. Yeah. Um, and then when I came back to Sydney, you know, I was like, oh, right. Yes, I am supported. Yeah, I am supported here, you know, and, and I was shown that in, in many, many different ways mm-hmm. um, through, through all the things that popped up into my field, you know, in, in the way of like financial stuff and like, you know, co- project stuff and, and people um, and the things that people are saying. So it was like, wow, there is so much support. Like there's never not support. And we can get into the illusion of like, oh, well, if that one person, that one toxic person, in my family doesn't love me, then my life is over because I have absolutely no support, but that's such an illusion. It's not, it's not yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. If people want to find you and they would love to work with you, where can they find you? What have you got going on? What are your offerings lately? Yes. So I am online under my name. My website's just Johnson Chong, J-O-H-N-S-O-N-C-H-O-N-G.com. Um, and that has all my updated um, events. I usually run um, shamanic breathwork, meditation, healing journeys. Um, I try to do those once a month here in Sydney. Um, and in these circles, we're we're essentially going through kind of the stuff we're talking about. Everyone will have their own version of it that's buried underneath the surface, and we unearth uh, the blocks um, from an energetic level, and then we try to rewire it 
Um, there's, there's breathing, there's energy work, there's some creative writing. Um, and we do it in a ceremonial setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I also run retreats. Um, I have one coming up and, and then we do this immersively in, in retreat where we integrate mind, body, spirit, um, and ceremony as well. We, we do some ceremonial things because the soul speaks in ceremony, you know, mm-hmm. the mind, like, you know, the podcasts are wonderful and um, and, and uh, creative writing is wonderful because it stimulates the psyche. However, um, we shift things through the symbolic and that typically happens through the abstract. And, uh, we, we go on retreat to places like Bhutan, um, which is happening in May, uh, Byron Bay is happening in, in February. Um, and then Tibet, which is going to happen in September, which I'm very excited about. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. And, and I'm also on Instagram as well. And, and um yeah so people can reach out there as well so beautiful well i'll link that um below so people can find you but wow thank you so much thank you so much for your openness for your um for your insight for walking the path and then you know leaving the door open for people behind you i'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation thanks thanks so much for uh stoking the conversation (laughs) It's, uh it's yeah it's it's pretty cool to have a conversation um about this um it's yeah i always it always brings up like new things mm. makes about things um in a new light so thank you for opening that door thank you for listening to the yogi therapist podcast if you enjoyed what was discussed today then consider subscribing and leaving a review Check out the show notes for any additional information about what was covered here today. And you can find me at theyogitherapist.com.au or on Instagram at theyogitherapist underscore for more information on me and my therapy. Until next time.